everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Serena Sakati, And I'm Sandy. This podcast is dedicated to retelling the stories of some of the most inspirational individuals in the world. Their true stories are all about overcoming hardships, defying the odds, and ultimately about believing in the power that the story isn't over until the story is good. And as always, we promise to do our very best to share their stories with the most accuracy and respect as possible. It can get a little tricky in our research when the sources do not all agree with each other, but we'll do our best to bring you the most truthful version of our story today. So Gigi, do you have anything to add on our third episode? We're getting on a roll here. Not yet. I can't wait to hear what's coming up though. Yeah, last episode we were talking about Sarah Blakely, the inventor of Spanx, and we kind of gave a nod in the early part of that podcast as to what we'll be talking about today. So if you're ready, we'll jump into our sources. All right, let's go. Our sources for this story are biography.com, wikipedia.com, looper.com, npr.org, and the book Michael Orr, I Beat the Odds. Do you know who Michael Orr is? I do not. All right, this is going to be a good one. Is this about Michael Orr? Yes, this is. All right. Billy Bean once said, it's hard not to be romantic about baseball. Who is Billy Bean? Billy Bean is, uh, he's one of the coaches of the Athletic A's who he had this, um, he, there's a a movie about it called Moneyball that Brad Pitt plays in. Did you ever watch it? You're not a big sports movie girl. So Billy Bean, who is known best for bringing the number side into sports so he built a baseball team based specifically off of statistics not right. off of talent and it kind of changed the way that baseball was played so one of his famous quotes is that um it's hard not to be romantic about baseball gotcha he sounded like a cartoon like spongebob or no, something so i was just trying to clarify he's a real person so he's the coach of the athletics all right carry on so billy bean once said it's hard not to be romantic about baseball And I think the same thing can be said for all sports. There is something poetic and hopeful about the possibility that no matter the odds, on the right day, it's anyone's game. It's why sports fans everywhere love to cheer for the underdog, and while the walk-off homer in the ninth, and the Hail Mary in the last few seconds of the fourth, and the game-winning bucket at the buzzer make us feel alive. Maybe not for you because you're not a sports person, but hey, I like sports. try and stay with me here. I was in karate for a long time. There's something magical about the improbable still being possible. I mean, like Billy Bean said, it really is hard not to be romantic about baseball. And that's where our story starts today, where we see firsthand that improbable truly doesn't have to mean impossible. This is the story of Michael Orr. Michael Jerome Williams Jr. was born on May 28, 1986, in Memphis, Tennessee. He was the sixth of 12 children born to Michael and Denise Orr. His mother suffered from alcoholism and crack cocaine addiction, and his father, Michael, was frequently in prison. As a result, Michael received very little attention or structure during his childhood, causing him to repeat the first and second grades. Michael's home life was so hard that he eventually attended 11 schools during his first nine years as a student. Poor kid. I know. When Michael's mother was off of drugs and working, she would remember to buy groceries, and Michael recalls that there would be a mad scramble within the 12 kids to grab whatever you could before anyone else got to it. So obviously we're starting the story off that this kid's Maslow's hierarchy of needs are not being met. Right. Or barely. Barely. At the very, very bare minimum. He's not thriving. Definitely not. At the age of seven, when Michael was at the tail end of the first grade, Michael and his siblings were taken from Michael's mother and placed in foster care. 
After this, he and his siblings alternated between living in various foster homes, couch surfing with friends, and experiencing their first periods of homelessness. Michael's father left the family when he was very young, leaving him with almost no memory of him. However, any opportunity to reconnect ended when Michael was a senior in high school. His father was murdered in prison. His father had previously been a cellmate to Michael's uncle on his mother's side. I wasn't really able to find any research that, like, if this was the person who murdered him, hmm. but they did add it in the research, so it makes me think there was some sort of connection, but we don't really know. They don't really focus on it a lot. Yeah. By the time Michael turned 11, he had settled into his most stable home environment to date in an area called Hurt Village in the projects of Memphis. You have some family in Memphis, or you did, didn't you? I'm assuming you didn't live in Hurt Village, but no. are you familiar with the area or anything like that? No. I mean, my family comes from like Mississippi, Mississippi Tennessee and then area. some of the aunts and uncles and cousins still live in Memphis, um, but I don't know much about the area, no. Okay. Michael lived there until he began high school, and Michael played football during his freshman year at a public high school in Memphis before applying for admission to Briarcrest Christian School at the suggestion of Tony Henderson, an auto mechanic who he was living with temporarily at the time. Tony also served as an athletic director for local youth sports programs and had been allowing Big Mike, as they called him, to stay in a spare bedroom in his house. At the time, Michael was already close to six foot five inches tall and weighing it at 350 pounds. Goodness. He's a big guy, a hence big the guy. name Big Mike. Right making him a great prospect for being the muscle on the streets to push drugs, but not exactly the ideal candidate for a prestigious private school. Either way, the quiet and keep-to-himself Michael tagged along for the ride to Briarcrest anyway. Tony was enrolling his own son at the school to fulfill the dying wish of his son's grandmother and thought Michael could enroll as well as this might be his best opportunity to get out of the projects. After bringing Michael along for the school visit, the private school's football coach, Hugh Freeze, submitted Michael Orr's school application to the headmaster. However, Michael was so quiet, answering almost no questions during his interview, that Briarcrest's admissions team couldn't really find a reason to admit him, let alone offer him a scholarship, which he would most certainly need to be able to attend the school as he was homeless and definitely wouldn't be able to, you know, pay the tuition. Right. Michael had spent his entire life just trying to survive. Impressing a panel of fancy board members to get into an expensive private school wasn't really at the top of his list, understandably. Right. He barely spoke during interviews. His reading comprehension level was closer to elementary school, and tests showed he would have an incredibly long road ahead of him if he were admitted. I know that you previously worked at a private school. Um, it w what was it? Faith West in Katie. Katie area. Did you guys get a lot of applicants of you know, kids like this, was it common to have them, you know, were, to put kids like this on scholarship? Did you see anything like this come through? Um, yes. We didn't have a lot of kids come through on scholarship, but there were some um, that did. And it wasn't academically, I mean, uh, athletically based. It was just need-based that we would have kids come in on scholarship. Um, and I will just jump in and say how bad for the school that just because somebody can't answer a bunch of questions that they wouldn't consider them for enrollment, I don't know, have a little empathy for the kid and where he's coming from. That's just a random thought I wanted to throw in. Well, funny you mention it. Even still, after this testing did not go in his favor, which who would have thought in any realm that it would have gone in his favor, 
Something about Michael and his story connected with the football coach, Hugh Freeze. It probably didn't help that Michael was 6'5 and 350 pounds and excelled at many sports at the time. The school football coach was interested in Michael, but not just for the prospect for the team, but as a redemption story. Where others at the school saw a kid who would never fit in or catch up, he saw a kid who had never been given even half a chance or opportunity to succeed. Hugh took his thoughts on the matter to the board of admissions and to the principal, making a convicting case for a very large exception to their typical admissions process. So he did have somebody in his corner kind of fighting for him. And I want to like take a step back even from that where Tony Henderson, who really had no skin in the game, was had kind of taken Michael under his wing and was encouraging him to. That's why he was at the school to begin with. Right. And that was the guy that he was living with. Right. Okay. The principal of Briarcrest, Steve Simpson, began to feel the same stirring in his heart for Michael and issued him a challenge to get his grades up in another private school, and if he succeeded, he could attend Briarcrest the next semester, which I think is kind of a stretch. This kid is 14 or something like that at the time. It's a tall order to say, hey, go get yourself into another private school and figure it out. So I don't really understand that there. The sources, some say it was a homeschooled program and some say it was a private school program, but I saw private school more often, so that's what I put in there. But obviously, Michael was not able to successfully complete this challenge. And why does he have to be at a private school? What was wrong with the local public school? I mean, there's a lot of things obviously wrong with the local public schools. He was in what would be considered like Title IX projects where the graduation rate was like 25% for young black males. So he just was, I mean, the grades that he was passing, he was just being put through. Right. So there was nothing that was helping him in any way to get into a better situation so the private school i think the idea was that people there would actually help prepare him for some sort of success and he was also obviously good at sports so michael was not able to successfully complete the challenge but he was admitted to briarcrest anyway when the headmaster realized that his requirements for michael's challenge had removed him from the public school system and he wasn't going to school at all and so michael orr began his new journey at the prestigious briarcrest christian school And this is a high school. He's in high school. Okay. Michael was out of place, shy, quiet, and immediately in over his head. Michael spent the first couple of months at Briarcrest living with Tony Henderson, who had recommended that he attend the school in the first place. And when that didn't work out, he eventually was spending his time couch surfing between different families of friends that he was slowly making at Briarcrest. Why didn't that work out? I think that um, it just kind of came to a head where Tony Henderson had to make a choice with like his own family and like they weren't exactly doing well either. They were also from the projects and kind of just slightly in a better situation. So he did the best that he could for as long as he could. And then in most situations like you, we have experience with that, you you know, the time just kind of runs out with that particular resource. And he had to, you know, um, Michael had to move on. Makes sense. Even with less than ideal living conditions, Michael Orr was named Division II Lineman of the Year in 2003 and First Team Tennessee All-State as well. Scout.com rated Michael a five-star recruit and the number five offensive lineman prospect in the country. So this is like in all of the United States. Michael would spend his first 20 months at Briarcrest as a nomad, couch surfing with nowhere really permanent to live, until eventually a young boy at the school named Sean Tui Jr. began noticing Michael on the sidelines of a basketball game and struck up a conversation with him. Soon after Sean connected with Michael, he set up a cafeteria account for him so that he would be able to eat lunch every day, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that's nice. 
Eventually, on Thanksgiving weekend in 2004, the Tui family, which consisted of the mom, Leanne, dad, Sean, the son, Sean Jr., who they called SJ, and the daughter, Collins, came across Michael, who was walking alone in the rain, wearing his only pair of shorts and going nowhere in particular, because again, he's homeless. That's sad. The mother of the family, Leanne, insisted they take him in for the weekend. The arrangement, however, soon became permanent. The Tuies were a very conservative Christian family, and taking Michael Orr in raised a few eyebrows in their community. Leanne actually admits in later interviews that she was actually raised in a very racist um, family environment. So if we haven't mentioned it yet, Michael Orr is African-American, right. and the Tuies are Caucasian. Gotcha. But Michael coming to stay for good was a quick and natural fit, and he soon grew close to his new foster family. Michael Orr would later officially be adopted by the Tui family in 2004. Aw, that's cool. Once Michael settled into the Tui home, he really began to have the opportunity to flourish for the first time. In Michael's memoir, he recalls how it felt to have two to three pairs of new shoes to choose from to go to school, and how having warm, clean clothes and continuous meals had an almost instantaneous positive effect on his mental health. He was finally able to turn his attention from survival to focus on what he needed to do to hopefully get ahead in life. However, very much unlike the whirlwind of instant gratification that the movies show after the protagonist gets a good night's sleep, Michael still had a lot of work ahead of him. His poor grades had landed him in a dangerous position to be put on academic probation, which would prevent him from participating in sports, which seemed to at the time be the only thing he really excelled in. So soon, a private tutor named Sue Mitchell was hired to work with Michael 20 hours a week to help improve Michael's grades. While Michael's low grades were initially so low that they would most certainly be a barrier to his acceptance into any NCAA program, in addition to his tutor, Michael also enrolled in a few 10-day-long internet-based courses from Brigham Young University. Taking and passing the internet courses allowed him to replace his Ds and Fs that he had earned in earlier school classes such as English, with A's he had earned via the internet. This finally raised his graduating GPA over the required minimum. He eventually increased his 0.76 GPA to a 2.52 GPA by the end of his senior year so that he could hopefully attend a Division I school. Awesome. Have you seen anything like that in your career as a teacher where students came from basically having a zero grade point average to, you know, it, it really does seem to be like an unlikely story of odds. Yeah, I mean, nothing that I saw. I will say that, I mean, we've debated education, and I mean, while I taught in public school, I also supported homeschool. Grades are dumb. Um, Which I always find fascinating coming from you as you just were substitute teaching yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not it, which is great because we need both sides of the coin in education, but I'm always so fascinated by your... Yeah. outlook or your opinion on education because who to know the system better than a teacher who worked in the field in various different grade levels with different d economic backgrounds all those things for years right so basically I taught for the relationship and to help kids like this particular kid you're describing I ended up with those kind of mostly boys in my class um, and so Part of me says grades are dumb, and then the other part of me says we shouldn't just push people through because they're athletically talented. So it's kind of, I have mixed feelings about putting somebody through just because they're good at sports, but then grades are also dumb. So 
I do want to say, we didn't go too much into it. In his initial schools, he was playing sports and doing all those kinds of things, but he wasn't getting put through because of sports. It was just the system. Get him onto the next grade. Doesn't we, This isn't our problem. Next teacher, next teacher, next right, teacher. Right. I don't think it was in necessarily his athletic inclination that was passing him but you but you can bet at the high school level with colleges looking at him that and there's a lot of athletes that get passed just because they're good at athletics sure um and so maybe that was part of his story but like so what you know and if it was yeah this kid could use a break right right? like like okay like maybe yes maybe he was six foot five and 200 350 pounds and nfl bound but he also was very much in desperate need of somebody giving him a break, whether that was because of his athletic ability or not. Hopefully it was because of his athletic ability. Like he was finally getting rewarded for something that he had control over. Right. Yeah. No, so I'm not opposed to that either. I just find it interesting. I think the debate can be made for both sides. Yeah. Would this still be the case for him if he was some 110 pound, five foot four scrawny kid with no athletic ability in his, his whole body? I don't know, maybe, but Obviously, that's not Michael's case, but you can definitely see where there's maybe some room that he was getting preferential treatment because he was an athlete. Right. And again, good for him. We all have gifts and talents. And if we hold to grades are dumb, then yes, go succeed and be successful. I guess. I don't know. Well, and in this podcast, we'll hear a lot more. We talked a little bit about Sarah Blakely's case where she didn't necessarily have like a rough upbringing. She had a tough go at trying to, you know, get her career off the ground but she probably wouldn't have been able to hang her hat on her athletic ability. So we'll see lots of different stories, I think, where, you know, whatever the struggle is, whether it's from the time that you're born or you see it later in life or whatever the case may be, and we're hoping, you know, this this doesn't necessarily resonate with you. You were never going to hang your hat on your athletic ability, but there's probably somebody out there, hopefully, that hears it who's like, hey, you know, like, what you're looking for is opportunity. Right. And I, it sounds like he did take advantage of the opportunity when it presented him. Right. And yeah, and leveraging the talent that you're born with. And if that was his, then good for him for getting sure. to leverage it. Yeah, sure. While at Briarcrest, Michael Orr also earned two letters each in track and basketball. So he was kind of an all-around athlete. He averaged 22 points and 10 rebounds a game in basketball, earning all-state honors by helping lead the basketball team to a 27-6 and record winning the district championship as a senior. Michael was also a state runner-up in the discus as a senior. At the conclusion of his senior season of football at Briarcrest, Michael Orr participated in the 2005 U.S. Army All-American Bowl, which is a pretty big deal for seniors. Universities across the South showed up during the spring of 2004, hoping to recruit Michael for football. Michael's position at left tackle was considered one of the most important offensive positions next to the quarterback. Essentially, the left tackle protects the quarterback. They're blindside. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. We're having a little uh, uh, sports lesson here. (laughs) Michael was incredibly close to the Tuies as well as the Freezes, viewing their children as his own siblings, and he weighed their opinions heavily when considering his decision in choosing a university to continue his football career. Both Sean and Leanne Tuie had attended the University of Mississippi, which in the eyes of the NCAA complicated Michael's decision to follow in their footsteps. They were essentially like big boosters of the university. And so there was some question there about was his offer bribed, you know, like were they going to be donating money, that kind of thing. Though Michael received scholarship offers from Tennessee, LSU, Alabama, Auburn, and South Carolina, he ultimately decided to play for Ed Orgeron at the University of Mississippi, the alma mater of his guardians. 
His decision to play for the Ole Miss Rebels football team sparked that investigation that we mentioned by the NCAA, but ultimately, after much back and forth, he signed his letter of intent and decided to go to Ole Miss. So it was kind of just like I was saying, that big investigation of was the university you know, going to be benefiting from this? And there was also something that can take into consideration that um, Tui's pre-existing relationship with the school, on top of the fact that Ole Miss hired Hugh Freeze, his previous high school coach, just 20 days after Michael signed his letter of intent with Ole Miss. Sounds suspect. So it was a little... A little sus. Yeah, but after a lot of back and forth, um, in the midst of Michael continuing to raise his grades to the required 2.5 GPA, which you need to play at the NCAA level, he was finally admitted uh, to Ole Miss on a football scholarship. Michael started in 10 games as a guard during his first season with the Ole Miss Rebels, becoming a first-team freshman All-American. After shifting to the position of left tackle for the 2006 season, he was named to various preseason all-conference and all-American teams. He was named to the SEC offensive lineman team his sophomore year. Um, He went on to basically just do a lot of really great things with football, which I'll spare you because you're like glazing over. My eyes are glazing over. Michael was also successful academically at Ole Miss, which you might find this more interesting. And his, his tested IQ score increased Um, 30 points between when he was measured in the public school systems growing up versus when he was entering into college. So his IQ increased to 30 points. Hmm. On January 14th, 2008, after his junior season, Michael Orr declared that he would be entering the 2008 NFL draft, which would mean that he would be leaving school early. However, two days later, he announced his withdrawal from the draft to return to Ole Miss for a senior season. And after his senior season, he was recognized as a unanimous first-team All-American, and he made the honor roll for the second time academically. Good for him. He graduated with a degree in criminal justice in the spring of 2009. So he made it all the way through. Made it all the way through. He did it. The Baltimore Ravens drafted Michael Orr with the 23rd pick in the first round of the 2009 NFL draft, and the Tui family was there to witness his draft day selection. Nobody else in his family made the the trip to be able to see him i don't think he really stayed in touch much with his siblings siblings. yeah i'm gonna go over this part real quickly because again you don't know football very well but our football listeners will appreciate it on july 30th 2009 michael orr signed a five-year 13.8 million dollar contract with the baltimore ravens he started in every game in 2009 and won his first super bowl ring after the ravens defeated the san francisco 49ers 34 to 31 in 2013 so he went all the way to the big show cool won super bowl on march 14th 2014 michael signed a four-year 20 million dollar contract with the titans and on the 6th of march 2015 he signed a two-year seven million dollar contract with the panthers and on June 17, 2016, he signed a three-year contract extension worth $21.6 million. On July 20th of 2017, Michael was finally released from the NFL after he failed to pass his concussion test. He had like a like delayed concussion-type syndrome, and he was just no longer like right. cleared to play, right. which happens to a lot of NFL players, especially like people getting tackled a bunch. Michael Orr is one of the subjects of Michael Lewis's 2006 book, The Blind Side, Evolution of a Game, and his portion of the book was adapted for film and directed by John Lee Hancock. The Blind Side was released in the United States on November 20th, 2009, the same year of his rookie season in the NFL. 
The movie was nominated for Academy Awards for both Best Picture and Best Actress. Sandra Bullock won an Oscar for her role of the portrayal of Leanne Tui. You've never seen this movie? No, I've never seen I'm it. I'm like shocked that you're not like, oh my gosh, I remember this movie. No, I have not. Because you like Sandra Bullock too, don't you? Yeah. Michael Orr wrote his autobiography, I Beat the Odds, From Homelessness to the Blind Side and Beyond in 2011. And Michael Orr may be the only Super Bowl champion to be more famous for being a character in a movie than being a Super Bowl champion football player. I mean, after all, it is hard to outshine Sandra Bullock. So, <laughs> you know, true. what can he do? <laughs> in his book, Michael Orr credits some of his 11 siblings with protecting him when he was a child. He was his mother's sixth child, and he says that even though he and his siblings feared social workers because they didn't want to be separated, he now appreciates that his caseworker did their best to not let them slip through the cracks. While speaking with People Magazine in 2021, Michael Orr talked heavily about the positive impact that being taken in by the Tuies had on him. In specifics, Michael said that it was the stability that the Tuies provided for him that allowed for him to thrive and grow into the person he's become. Before I finish up with this, I would just like to touch a little bit on Maslow's hierarchy of needs that, you know, we mentioned early on. Can you explain just really briefly, like, how much of a difference it can make in their ability to go on and thrive in other areas? Right. So when you're in survival mode, obviously, school, you know, you're not going to do your best in school. You can't. You're only wondering where the next meal's coming from. I know I taught... Um, at a school one time and the kid came in with a note saying that he, he didn't have his backpack and what ended up happening was their car got repossessed that night and all the kids stuff was in the backpack so when you're in survival mode you know you're doing the best you can and you're not necessarily going to thrive in that environment yeah which I think is why like wrapping up this case I think it's really important to say you know he appreciates his siblings he appreciates the opportunity the two he's gave him and you know he says in his book that what the story underscores is how he tells it is just how many things have to happen for those odds to be overcome it wasn't just one person of course it begins with michael himself and a really impressive determination not to repeat his mother's life not to become just another number or a statistic when you read his story in his own words, what resonates is how many other people had to get involved in order for him to get as far as he did in real life. He had friends who were as determined as he was to get out, and he was choosing to spend time with the right people. He had brothers and sisters who helped keep him alive physically with food and shelter. He had a social worker who he now understands was making tenacious efforts to keep track of him as he was making equal, equally tenacious efforts to evade her. He had foster families, which, while very uneven, included some placements where he was exposed to good discipline and routine that made him continue to go to school. He later zeroed in in his book on the Hendersons, um, you know, the, the family friend that was already living outside of the pro just outside of the projects that had achieved some of what he wanted for himself, and he stuck as close as he could as long as he could. He then talks about Briarcrest accepting him in you know, the variety of school families that took him in for a few nights here and there before the two E's took him in permanently. He talks about the private tutor who was utterly devoted to him 20 hours a week for four years. Um, he took correspondence courses to bring his grades up, the people that were doing those courses that helped him. And this is the picture that he paints in his book. What happened in his life is instructive, not because of the process and that it was magical like it looks like in movies, but because it was so enormously daunting that this is what was required, this level of heavy lifting by everyone, which did start with Michael himself, but it certainly didn't end there. The additional advantages afforded by the Tui's willingness to share some of their considerable wealth 
This is what it took to turn things around for a guy who started out as an amazing, naturally gifted athlete and who really had a passion and desire to change his life. So I think it's really, really cool that in his book, it's easy to stand on that platform and be like, the odds were against me. I did it. It was all me. But he spends a lot of time really paying attributes to little, even people who feel like they probably played a little role along the way in helping him. And I can say we didn't grow up near in a situation like that, but I have very formidable memories of coaches and parents of teammates and just people along the way who were willing to give rides and to show up and to do a little bit extra that, you know, it's memorable. And I think it does make a difference, especially in stories like Michael's. Michael Orr has shown us a real life example of how the improbable doesn't have to mean the impossible. And with a story like this, I think we can all understand now how easy it is to romanticize sports and to want to root for the underdog. If Michael Orr can come out on top, it reminds us that we can too. And that spark of hope is all some of us really need to believe that maybe our story isn't over yet. That maybe the story really isn't over until the story is good. And that is the real life story of Michael Orr. As always, we love you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.